Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with Neil Thomas, a research associate at the Paulson Institute's Macro Polo. Today we're going to be talking about how KFC, toilets, and propaganda explain China. So Neil, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jun. So Neil, what is your favorite Chinese KFC promotion? It's a very good question because KFC has a lot of promotions. They're very good at their local advertising spend. Um, probably the most memorable KFC promotion was the first one I saw in China back in maybe around 2012 when I'd first, you know, just started learning Chinese, didn't know anything about the country, and it was a pretty standard promotion. But just started out, there was like a Chinese family, you know, mother, father, a single child with uh, two sets of grandparents. They were all sitting down at a very elaborate, very ornate dining room. I'm thinking this is an advertisement for, you know, some kind of like high-end experience. But then they bust out, you know, a family bucket of 24 KFC fried chicken pizzas. And it's just like, (laughs) wow, what's going on here? Um, I'm obviously in a very different country. And while I, I don't remember the, you know, exact name of the promotion or whether it was even very effective, it was just, you know, for me personally, as someone, as a student of China, it's just a very eye-opening experience, and it just shows how, you know, even at the very micro level, uh, you can have you know, huge differences in how goods and companies are, are received. So the one that sticks out for me, just in terms of taste, was this recent like French baguette chicken thing, which was really good because the bread was actually super solid, and it's really hard to find like good baguette bread here in China. And all of a sudden, KFC was the one to deliver it for me. But my favorite fast food promotion I've come across, and I'm not sure if you're a fan of Rick and Morty, but they had this whole um, a big fan. episode about finding Szechuan sauce, um, which was this like <laughs> mythical sauce that came out when Mulan was released back in you know 1999 or whatever. And Rick and Morty actually has a following here in China. So McDonald's released this Szechuan sauce and the whole pitch was like, all these Americans really love this sauce. And my favorite part about this was like the internet's response to this sauce was basically like, Guys, like this is supposed to be from Sichuan, but it's not even spicy. It's like sweet and goopy. Like this is so outrageously inauthentic and not good at all. So even even the um uh, uh even the appeal of the nostalgia of this like tie-in to this great uh you know kusha this this sci-fi uh anime show just it didn't quite land right in China, unfortunately. Though I got a big kick out of it, and it was fun bringing back some Sichuan sauce packs to my my friends in the U.S. There's probably enough foreigners in China to have a bit of a market anyways. <laughs> you'd hope. You'd hope. So, Neil, when did the first KFC come to China? And what was the scene politically for foreign restaurants and foreign businesses in general at that time? So the first KFC opened in uh, 1987 on November the 12th at Tiananmen. Uh, so just by Tiananmen Square. Uh, at the time, it was the very first Western fast food restaurant to open anywhere in mainland China. And politically, in the 1980s, it was uh, the very first decade of reform and opening. So China's future was uh, very contingent. Um, there were different factions in the leadership uh, kind of pushing for you know, more reform or 
more conservative reform. There's a battle between planners led by Chen Yun and kind of more, you know, market-oriented policies uh, spearheaded by people like Hu Yaobang and um, Zhao Ziyang. Um, so it was definitely a time of economic contestation, but also a time when China was much weaker economically and politically. So it had a much greater need for you know, foreign expertise, foreign brands, and foreign restaurants. So how did that first KFC go over? It was a massive hit. Uh, there were lines for about two or three hours outside. And bear in mind, this is November as well, so it was freezing. And the, uh, the restaurant actually had to call in the local police station to maintain order. because There was so much commotion around trying to get in and trying to be the, the first person to try those finger-licking good uh, chicken drumsticks. Uh, and we actually have some pretty remarkable, uh, really precise statistics for that day. Uh, 2,200 buckets of chicken on day number one for a cool 83 grand. Not bad. So I hear it was also booked for weddings. It was booked for weddings. KFC and you know Western brands in general were a way for you know Chinese who were you know kind of trying to get out of the Maoist era to you know mark themselves as uh, consumers of a certain class. Um, it was a way to accumulate cultural capital. And um, one of the other main things about why KFC was successful was that not only did it serve pretty good chicken, uh, it also brought a new type of restaurant experience. So it was t- very clean, it was very well lit, it was, uh, had excellent customer service, uh, and it was probably one of the nicest places where you could hold a function in Beijing at the time, which was still a fairly dour place compared to what it is today. You know, it's always really interesting to me watching Chinese reality TV or movies where the romantic scenes and the date scenes are always in Western restaurants. Basically, if you want to do something long, man, if you want to impress your girlfriend or whatever, you take them to a Western establishment, never to a Chinese food place. I wouldn't necessarily say never, but um, especially at the time in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, it really was one of the few places where you could um, do something like a date because the older Chinese restaurants were kind of these big banquet oriented affairs where you'd only very rarely go to them and it would probably be for some kind of feast. So a wedding or perhaps for, you know, work occasion, perhaps to welcome some foreign visitors who are here to tell you about how you should open a new KFC. So it really was a place to, you know, to distinguish yourself and to kind of look towards the the future. What did these KFC operators do from an operational perspective to differentiate them from their competitors? So I think a key reason why KFC was so successful, because it's now one of the biggest fast food chains in in China. It's got about 5,600 odd stores in 1,200 cities. So it's very big. Um, And nowadays it's about $5 billion of revenue coming in each year. So the key to its success was really its ability to build a national supply chain within China. So it expanded quickly and it expanded into cities all over China. Whereas uh, McDonald's, for instance, tended to focus first on like the the low-hanging fruit. So it opened its first restaurant in 1990, so three years after KFC. But it opened not in Beijing, um, which is the political and cultural capital, but in Shenzhen, just across from Hong Kong which is, you know, it's a more liberal part of China. It was, you know, where the first special economic zones were, but it was far away from, you know, the center of political attention. So by expanding quickly 
KFC could build pretty much an integrated supply chain to the point where about 97% of its inputs were domestic um, and only a few years after it entered, where even the, the salt in 1987 had to be imported because they couldn't find good quality enough salt to, uh, to make the chicken taste just that much better. Can you talk me through the chicken wars a little bit? What was going on in the in the 90s when obviously many Chinese business owners saw that fried chicken was a hit and, and wanted to create similar restaurants for themselves? Yes. Yeah, so the chicken wars were KFC's first big challenge in the Chinese market. So even by the end of uh, 1988, so the second year that KFC was in China, the Qianmen store in Beijing was its highest selling store anywhere in the world, which is huge for such a well-established fast food brand. So naturally, this success got a lot of domestic uh, entrepreneurs interested in making money off this new sensation of Western fast food and the Western uh, restaurant experience. Uh, and they could do that now because there were was gradually relaxed uh, rules on economic life and the ability to start businesses. So there was a company called uh, Ronghua Chicken, which started in Shanghai in the early 1990s, which basically basically copied KFC and made it a little bit more local and had a motto that uh, where there's a KFC, there'll be a Ronghua Chicken. So they basically opened up <laughs> right opposite KFCs across the country. And their main selling point was that we're Chinese and they're not. And that's a, a common thing that a lot of Western companies across a lot of different industries have experienced. IP theft, you could call yeah, it. Yeah, we, we just recorded a story with, uh, we just recorded an episode with Matt Sheehan talking about this dynamic with uh, Google and Baidu, which was a little later than the chicken wars, but certainly something you see very often in competitions between foreign and local brands here in China. Yeah, so Ronghua was successful for a few years. Um, it was expanding quickly, but by about the year 2000, Ronghua had gone bust. It had folded. Um, it couldn't compete, not necessarily because it was more expensive. I think it was actually cheaper, but it just didn't have the, the knowledge of operating systems and supply chains that allowed KFC to be so successful. And there's actually a, an amazing quote from the, the boss of Ronghua at the time that it folded, which basically says that, yeah, they lacked uh, a well-developed system that KFC possesses to oversee you know, every aspect of the business, services, site locations, staff training, management. So while it's not quite tech transfer or price competition, um, this just lack of knowledge of how to run a really complicated business with you know, supply chains that cross an entire country and maybe cross borders is what allowed KFC to, you know, maintain a pretty dominant position in the market throughout the 1990s and to win the uh, the infamous chicken wars. It's interesting, you know, there's all this talk of Chinese corporate espionage and stealing plans for planes or whatnot, but you can't really, uh, you can't by nefarious means teach an organization how to run itself and how to do operations. And clearly this is something that Chinese businesses have really mastered with the rise of, you know, Meituan and Olama and all this O2O uh, stuff that you see executed in China at a higher level than almost anywhere else in the world. But at this time, there was clearly an edge that KFC and other uh, Western firms had in terms of this brass tacks operational uh, stuff that you need to do to run a run something like a fast food chain well. 
Exactly. And I mean, China is a very complex market to be in precisely because it is so big. And if you're trying to be a nationwide restaurant chain, you know, operating in, you know, uh, Gansu is not the same as operating in Shanghai. So you really have to be very localized in how you approach that. And while Ronghua was just getting off the ground in the 90s, KFC already had a, a distribution network nationwide. It had its own cold chain system, its own fleet of trucks, its own, you know, proprietary operations uh, system um, that, you know, basically enabled it to keep on making money uh, even while it was opening hundreds of new stores all over the country. And so you're totally right. These things like processes, supply chain management, they're difficult. There's a whole, you know, academic discipline uh, of supply chain management. It's hard. You can't just up and do it. And that's the same in even very high-tech sectors like commercial aviation, for instance, where... You know, there's definitely some technical things that China hasn't mastered, but also just putting like a Boeing or an Airbus plane together is a really difficult uh, engineering feat. So that's definitely something that helped KFC in the first couple of decades it was there. So let's now turn the to, to the 2000s after the Chinese competition caught up. How in this era did KFC keep its edge? Yes, yeah, so the 2000s were a bit more difficult for KFC because he had a whole bunch of uh, competitors, both from China itself, like uh, Jun Gongfu, the chain that has Bruce Lee pulling a pose uh, on all of its stores, uh, and also you know Japanese chains like Ajisen, which makes some some very tasty noodles. Uh, they started getting the hang of the China market, and you know ultimately running a restaurant business is not quite as complex as you know building a Boeing or something like that. So KFC really decided to kind of ditch its Western branding because that had kind of worn off by now. You know, there was a lot of Western companies in China. Um, There's increasing geopolitical tension as well with the US. Um, So it really consciously tried to become a a Chinese brand. And so, as you mentioned, like localization of its products was a huge part of that. So, for instance, one of the first things they did was to introduce a Chinese breakfast menu. So you could uh, order congee, uh, soy milk, yotiao, the savory fried dough sticks. And then they also introduced... Which uh, are some solid yotiao, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and when they did that, they, they did it well. They had a whole, a very localized management team. Um, almost all the labor and the management was local or perhaps from Taiwan. So they didn't try to run their China business from uh, New York or... Uh, Los Angeles. Uh, they really did localize the entire China operation. And some of the other great examples of this was um, uh, the lunch menus. They introduced, you know, just rice meals, basically. And also, they went even more micro in their localization. So beyond just, you know, making the menu uh, Chinese, obviously, China is a huge country with a huge variety of different regional tastes and cuisines. And things like the uh, spicy chicken you get at KFC is actually a bit spicier in places like Sichuan uh, and Hunan, where the local cuisine is is more chili-loving. So they really went uh, the whole hog in making everything local. And they they did that as well by granting management in these places a bit more freedom over um, how how they ran their stores. Could you talk a little bit about how this localization seems to have immunized KFC from politics in a way? Yeah, it's a really fascinating kind of positive externality for KFC. Because, you know, as people are probably fairly aware, foreign firms in China have borne the brunt of some nationalist protests when things go bad in geopolitics. 
so one of the earliest instances of this that KFC uh, encountered was in, in 1999 when the U.S. bombed the uh, Chinese embassy in Belgrade during the uh, NATO bombings of Serbia. And there were massive riots all across uh, China, um, anti-U.S. riots. And actually in Changsha, two KFC outlets were trashed by rioting uh, Chinese um, because they saw that as the, the representative of America, as an American company. And whilst this was true, these protests didn't really spread because in a lot of other places, uh, the local managers and uh, servers were able to argue pretty effectively that KSC was uh, a Chinese company because it had Chinese suppliers, it employed Chinese people, and it really served a, a Chinese market. So if you were trashing KFCs, you were actually mostly harming Chinese people and Chinese incomes rather than Uncle Sam back in America. So this localization was an effective argument, effective strategy to prevent any further uh, damage or reputational loss through these US-China tensions. So it, it was really interesting how uh, some of your sources for this piece like from the likes of CCTV and Xinhua were actually seemingly proud of KSC's success, which is certainly not the way they might treat other American brands operating in China. Yes, that's true. The state media sources, of course, everything is, every media is state media to some degree in China. So whilst there is some uh, Xinhua and People's Daily articles, a lot of the sources are more from like the commercial media. Um, So like, you know, Sohu mm. and NetEase, which really do a lot more reporting than just, you know, what's uh, Xi Jinping or the current leader been doing with you know, dignitaries today. Um, they have much more freedom to you know, do things that will be interesting, that will drive clicks, uh, as long as they don't cross political lines. So a lot of those stories sure. uh, probably were the, the meat of this. But I said there are definitely, you know, lessons for other companies that want to do well in the Chinese market. I mean, actually, in 2008, uh, KFC uh, adopted a slogan that basically was word for word, change for China. That kind of neatly uh, summarizes their approach. Extreme localization, domestic yeah. labor, executives, products, supply chains, and advertising. And so that's certainly, you know, like any other market, probably uh, a good strategy to do well in China and a way to localize a lot of the benefits from your business to ensure that there are people in China who are heavily invested in your success. And, you know, politics is alive in China. Um, there is some ability to uh, input into the political system. And if you're doing, you know, doing well and making money for the local economy, even if you're technically an American company, local officials know where their bread is buttered to some extent. So I had this idea to write a story a little while back doing restaurant reviews of all the domestic Chinese fast food brands. But after eating two or three of them, I was so disgusted by the food quality that I decided to give up this idea. Do you have any sense of why exactly it seems that Chinese fast food hasn't really caught on? There are no brands as big and successful as the likes of KFC or McDonald's that serve uh, you know, uh, I'd have to ask you where you went uh, for those first two or three uh, expeditions because I I think there are actually some pretty decent uh, Chinese fast food chains out there. 
In fact, um, my favorite fast food in China is definitely not KFC. Actually, it's a place called Shaxian Xiaochi. It's the uh, the Pac-Man logo that you might have seen across a lot of cities. It's all over the place, basically. It's from Fujian、okay. originally. They do really great Zhengjiao dumplings, a good like you know、uh, Jitui fan, like great、uh, fried noodles, and it's super cheap. It's very low end, but it's just quality. It's dependable. It's you know one of the first places I went to eat in China, and you know it's kind of what I, I seek it out as like a comfort food every time I go back to China. So there are a few places like that. I granted I don't eat、uh, a lot of the fast food there, but I'd say there are you know there are exceptions to、uh, what you unfortunately experienced. All right, maybe I'll maybe I'll have to dive back in、uh, with your suggestions. So let's now turn to the toilet revolution in China. So first off, I have to ask where you got the idea for this piece in the first place. That's a great question. The、uh, toilet revolution. It started in 2015, and I think I saw some news reports around about that time, and just kind of you know thought it was interesting, filed it away. You know, that'd be interesting to do something on that. Someday, didn't really grasp the significance of it. I think it just sounded cool, basically, and I thought it'd be interesting to delve in.、Uh, and then it just kind of, you know, was on the back burner for for years and years. Never kind of、um, piqued my interest enough to like commit to writing something about it.、Uh, I just wasn't following it very closely either.、Uh, and then, yeah, when I got to Macro Polo a few months ago, there was just a, a meeting of the minds、uh, of me and some colleagues. And you know, just decided to, you know, I just d- dive in and see what was there and see if it was interesting. And it turns out it, it is. It's a lot you can glean about、um, contemporary politics and、uh, from the toilet revolution. So, as you say, it is a serious policy platform that enjoys strong backing from the central government and should not be trivialized. So, I will do my best not to fall into that <laughs> trap over the next twenty minutes. So, so first off, what were the bureaucratic origins of、uh, of the toilet revolution in the first place? Yeah. So, from my analysis, I think the main driver of the toilet revolution was not Xi Jinping, but actually a, a current vice minister. At the Ministry of Culture and Tourism,、um, a man by the name of Li Jinzhao, who was formerly the head of the National Tourism Administration, that got absorbed into the new ministry.、Um, so back in the the late 90s and early 2000s, he was the mayor of Guilin, which is a very scenic tourist town, which has these old karst mountains that you can you know go by on these beautiful rivers. So it's beginning to attract a lot of attention as a you know tourism destination, both within China and also abroad. So he experienced, unfortunately, the complaints of a lot of foreigners who visited and found the local toilets to be completely unacceptable and definitely much worse than they'd、uh, ex- experienced elsewhere. You know, they were mostly pit toilets rather than flush toilets. They really smelled bad.、Um, they weren't well maintained. They were dirty, unhygienic. And they didn't even provide toilet paper, which is still a big problem for toilet goers all over China. So he introduced a big push to build a lot of toilets locally, which he called a toilet revolution, and that built you know about 850 odd new toilets, which was such a successful policy that central bureaucrats in Beijing noticed what he was doing and declared that Guilin was.、Uh, A model for how localities with tourism destinations should go about constructing new toilets. So this Guilin model、um, became his kind of 
his personal trademark, if you like, within the bureaucracy. So he kept moving through the ranks and he became uh, head of the National Tourism Administration in 2014. And from there, he started to make toilets a particular priority of that administration. And, you know, they started passing toilet revolution materials. They started to introduce, like, particular conferences and roundtables, discussion sessions um, on toilets and how to improve toilets in tourism locations. Uh, And then they actually launched uh, their own nationwide toilet revolution in February 2015. Uh, And Lee, Minister Lee at that point, um, published a really quite a remarkable essay um, the next month in March 2015 uh, titled Tourism Must Develop, Toilets Must Be Revolutionized, where he pretty ferociously attacked uh, local officials who were only focused on GDP growth to the exclusion of uh, public services uh, and, you know, clean toilets, obviously. And he identified those, you know, substandard toilets as the, uh, the weakest link in China's tourism infrastructure. You know, it's really interesting how this all kind of started from being embarrassed at foreigners complaining that they had nowhere to poop. I mean, you would expect that it'd be enough of a motivation to see your own people suffering from these diseases on behalf of poor, uh, you know, on account of something so easily fixable as better sanitation. But no, it actually took folks wanting to hang out at these beautiful karsts and um, getting frustrated and, you know, writing uh, the equivalent of reviews on TripAdvisor, whatever that was in the 1980s, I don't know, letters to Lonely Planet or something, to get this to get this moving. So the opinions of foreigners was definitely a key motivating source for, you know, local officials in areas with, you know, big tourist sites. But there's actually a couple of strands to the uh, toilet reforms that have happened across China over the last two or three decades. So the toilet revolution actually started and stems from this you know, tourism toilets push. And it was mainly about building toilets in areas where there's a lot of visitors from abroad, but also from places in China. So obviously people who come from Shanghai have higher expectations uh, for the necessities of life than um, you know, people who've grown up in rural villages a long way from anywhere. So that was a, also a factor. Um, but there has been a kind of separate push to uh, subsidize the building of you know home toilets, uh, so home flush toilets in rural areas um, that's kind of been driven by the state council since the, um, since the 1980s, basically, when some uh, well-known economists uh, were publishing books calling for you know, a toilet revolution that was not to do specifically with tourists, but, as you said, um, was to do with countering you know, fecal-borne disease like cholera, which obviously is a huge public health issue. There's actually some UN stats that show that uh, $1 spent on more sanitary toilets saves you $9 of public spending on combating diseases like cholera. Uh, So that was definitely the motivating force for this other uh, strand of toilet building, which has kind of been happening uh, more in the background since, yeah, since the 1980s. Because even in 1993, if something like only 7.5% of all rural households had access to a sanitary toilet, uh, which is incredibly low. And that's now up to about 80% today. And they're trying to eradicate, uh, I'm trying to make that 100% by 2030. Um, so now those two strands, the, the rural households 
and the tourism toilets, they've actually been combined in the toilet revolution since um, November 2017, actually. It was when the last time Xi Jinping made some remarks about the toilet revolution. So yes, uh, the opinion of foreigners was critical for, for tourism. Backpedaling a little bit, how did this catch Xi's eyes in the first place? And what do you think made him particularly amenable to the toilet revolution? Yeah, so the toilet revolution kind of became what it is now uh, when Xi Jinping gave his uh, personal seal of approval by making uh, written comments or, or pishu on the uh, National Tourism Administration's plans for the toilet revolution. And that was in April 2015. So that's when it became a national level program with the endorsement of the, the general secretary, which is obviously very important for getting things done in China's bureaucracy. But in terms of why Xi Jinping himself, you know, as a, an individual political leader, might have been you know, particularly disposed to supporting this you know, amidst the you know, dozens and hundreds and thousands of other uh, potential policies that are put in front of him you know, every month. Um, one idea that I had that's in the piece, um, you know, I can't prove causation uh, like, you know, in a double blind peer review sense, but um, the propaganda tome that was published to document, you know, Xi Jinping's political origin story, which is called uh, Xi Jinping's Seven Years as a Sent Down Youth, uh, actually tells a story about how when Xi Jinping was in the little village of uh, Zhao He was, as a you know, very young sent down youth, he was instrumental in uh, building the very first gender segregated toilets in the village. Um, so he's been doing this for a long time. And then in the 1980s, when he was in uh, Zhengding County as a young party cadre, he also played an instrumental role in uh, making the <laughs> local toilets cleaner and more hygienic. So he's been mucking around toilets for, for decades and decades now. And he actually has a bit of a habit when he goes on his uh, rural inspection tours and sits down with you know, carefully screened peasants uh, to tell them about how great he is and how great the party is. He always asks them what type of toilets they have. This is in like multiple uh, state media reports of many different visits. And he's very interested in making sure they all have flush toilets. So maybe his personal experiences of living in a place where he had to, you know, the bushes was really instrumental to you know, a national level policy that he's uh, helped out today. So, I mean, I totally buy it. Look, when the when the guy on top has something he wants and there are a few million people whose whole job it is is to implement what he thinks, uh, especially with something that's relatively low cost and, you know, easy to show off when the the TV cameras come to count, it makes complete sense that this would filter down. So you write that top level support generates bottom up enthusiasm for compliance from ambitious younger cadres vying for attention and hoping to distinguish themselves for promotion. So I don't know how much Ian Kershaw you've read. Um, he's a, a fantastic historian of the Third Reich, but he has this theory called working towards Hitler, basically, where when you have a giant bureaucracy under under someone that's in an autocratic system, 
if it's clear what the top guy wants, you have underlings who are all going to vie for attention in uh, various ways to sort of realize what they think the the leader's dreams and aspirations are so they can come back and, um, you know, give themselves, uh, you know, make themselves look good and and show that they're, quote, working towards the Fuhrer. So, I mean, while this wasn't necessarily doing stuff like, I mean, while this is definitely, this is definitely a positive impact of that when you have uh, uh uh, you know the the big boss saying let's build more toilets and and people under him trying to work towards that. It's interesting the sort of parallels in different autocratic systems where um, you have bureaucracies that are enormous, but all uh, can be sort of oriented towards whatever the top top uh, top leadership is working at. Maybe not. Uh, maybe sometimes through direct, but also through more indirect channels. Yeah, that definitely rings true as an approximation of what happens within the Chinese system. Uh, Though I'd say that, you know, even aside from communist China and Nazi Germany, similar dynamics play out all across different organizations, whether that's, you know, democratic governments or, you know, organizations, universities, private companies. Uh, It's like the, as a friend once said, like the golden rule of upwards management is to make your boss look good. And so that's what happens in a lot of these systems. And it's particularly, I think, you know, has particular power in autocratic systems. I totally agree. You have much more ability to get things done, which is great when, you know, some, someone like, you know, Minister Lee wants to build more toilets to improve hygiene and improve the tourism economy. But obviously, when you have uh, more uh, abusive policies, there's also uh, less potential for those to be corrected and modulated within the system. Yeah, I mean, I think the classic example is is Mao and the Great Leap Forward, right, where you have him deciding uh, on some pretty horrific agricultural policies and everyone under him too scared to tell him it was going poorly uh, or uh change these uh, horrible, horrible uh, uh, rules and regulations around agriculture that, that led to a catastrophe. So yeah, definitely some upsides and downsides when it comes to aggressively top-down uh, bureaucracies. But I'm curious if there are any other, uh, before we get too depressed here, um, uh, <laughs> I'm curious if there are any other similarly unheralded but equally important revolutions that you've come across in doing this research. Yeah, so I think the reason I chose to um, devote so much time to writing this piece was probably because I thought that the the toilet revolution was the most unheralded of all the revolutions that are going on. But uh, in terms of the the revolution rhetoric, uh, which is obviously you know very important within the Chinese system, currently the the biggest one going on is probably the technological revolution that Xi Jinping is hailing as part of you know Made in China twenty twenty five plans for self-reliance over the next decade. So that's, you know, kind of a revolution of China's ability to produce indigenous uh, innovation and to produce its own semiconductors and planes uh, and things like that. So that's probably one of the most important uh, so-called revolutions that are happening right now. But I'd say that Toilets lays a pretty good claim to being the most unheralded uh, of these revolutions. So so I will note uh, that the... 
the technological revolution now has its own 70 episode series. Well, actually two of them recently. So um, both Aichi and Yoku have released entrepreneurship type dramas. One, Chuang Ye Shirdai, which is the Aichi one, I think, uh, featuring Angela Baby as a high powered investor going in and out of the uh, startup world uh, with plenty of relationship drama at the same time. So it's funny how you see these sorts of revolutions uh, the cues are picked up not only in the business world or, or in the SOE sector, but also in the in the cultural world, where uh, maybe the uh, casting directors and and head and hotshots at the media companies understand that the government's wanting to push us in a certain direction, so is going to create uh, you know the next big show, maybe riffing off the the theme that that the government wants to produce. It's mind boggling how they haven't produced a TV series about the toilet revolution yet. I mean, just endless, uh, endless material for toilet humor. <laughs> like, gather yeah, that's not really how the Chinese government likes to do things. <laughs> so maybe we, uh, maybe we can so start it. Maybe now, we can film let's... it. <laughs> My uh, services as a consultant are available. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll put up a few hundred kwai. Um, you know, well, maybe we can get maybe we can get a matching grant from the. Uh, from the Guilin Tourist Association yeah. documenting their, uh, their 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 heroic efforts in um, uh, helping people get uh, private uh, uh, places to go number two. So uh, let's take a quick detour into bicycles. Um, so you recently sure. wrote a piece about the evolution of the role of bicycles in Chinese society. So um, um, I like how you start off with uh, an emperor actually uh, enjoying the, uh, the 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 two wheeled mode of transportation. So what's the story there? Yeah, so this is a really interesting story that um, that you just find by you know I just when I go do these topics, it's just kind of it's an all spectrum research expedition. Like I just read everything I can about them through so all these amazing stories. Um, in from Chinese sources about you know the very early history of the bicycle, which was actually only invented in the early 1860s in Paris and came to China in 1868, so pretty recently in the scheme of things, and they only really took off in China in the early 20th century. They they were pretty expensive still. Roads were terrible in China, so it really wasn't a very effective means of getting around. But then you see them start becoming quite popular. When you know postal services, when armed forces, when you know, police forces start to realize the efficiency dividends of bicycles, and you know the roads get better, bicycle design basically gets to where it is now, and this kind of proliferation of bicycles was not unnoticed in the uh, the Forbidden City in Beijing, where the last emperor um, Pui was still living even after he was deposed, uh, right through to the mid 1920s. And so when he was an adolescent, the story goes that his tutor, uh, Reginald Johnson, uh, who came from England, gave him a bicycle uh, as a present. And he really loved biking. He was, became a massive fan and he spent a lot of time basically pedaling, pedaling around the very empty, forlorn squares of the Forbidden City you know, in a China that was already post-imperial, where he was basically just, you know, whiling away his time in a kind of uh, purgatory. But anyway, he loved bicycles so much, uh, he actually instructed his staffers to remove a lot of the thresholds uh, in the doors of the Forbidden City. So even today, you can see there's like 30 doors or so that should have thresholds, but don't. 
And they were all removed in the 1920s when Pui basically just wanted to ride around a bit more. And he also did things like he turned the, the very picturesque um, Pavilion of Crimson Snow, which is a favorite place for meditation and literary contemplation of previous emperors, into a massive bike shed because he had 20 of the things and he needed to store them somewhere. So that was the place closest to the gate he used to, to get out. And that's where they went. History be damned. <laughs> Some people find bikes very meditative. So, you know, it's, it's, it lines up. I think it's okay. That's true. Uh, so let's now go to the 1980s and 1990s uh, when China was known as the Kingdom of Bicycles. So what was it about that period that gave bicycles such a toehold as a means of transportation in China? Yeah, so the 1980s was when incomes started to rise in China for really the first time in a very long time. Uh, the economy was growing. Um, people were gradually moving out of the, the Danway or the work unit system, whereby you basically live where you worked and get all of your services and food and health education you know, in that same compound. And we're starting to have commuter lifestyles. And really, because cars at that point were still totally unaffordable, domestic models were few and far between, and public transport, as we know it today, um, really didn't exist in a lot of these places. Bus services were meager. Uh, and the subways that we probably mostly get around with today, most of those were built in the last 10, 20 years. Beijing had two subway lines uh, for most of the reform and opening period. So really, the bicycle was the only way to get around. And fortuitously, Mao's government had invested in building up bicycle production capacity. So there were a few million bikes lying around. But once that market got, to some extent, gradually deregulated over the 1980s, you know, production quotas were removed, price controls were removed, uh, bicycle rationing was removed, people could start to access bicycles, and they could start to afford bicycles. And given a lack of any other alternative for all but the CCP elite and people who'd become very rich, which was a very small number of people, Everyone used bicycles. Uh, so by 1996, you have over half a billion bicycles in China. And the streets of uh, Beijing, Shanghai, all these big cities were just full of bicycles. There were far more bicycles than cars. And you had those like kind of white metal barriers that you see today separating off a lot of bike lanes. They were way into the center of the road. So there might be two or three uh, lanes for cars, but then you'd have like three or four lanes just full of bicycles of commuters, you know, tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands a day, basically eating up about, in Beijing, about 70% of the road space was bicycles in the 1980s. So, yeah, this kind of it's absolutely mesmerized, uh, you know, both domestic and foreign observers. But that's really when, you know, around the world, um, visitors, you know, really latched on to this, uh, this name, the Kingdom of Bicycles. And it really was for those couple of decades. Chinese consumers then upgraded to four wheels. Yeah, so in 1994 was the, the real turning point, if we were to identify one. That was when the a national automotive industry policy was passed by the state council, and the government started to explicitly encourage uh, people to buy cars and explicitly discourage people from continuing to cycle. Um, so that obviously had a, a huge effect on uh, automobile consumption, China is now, uh, you know, year by year, the largest producer and consumer of automobiles. Um, and, you know, as the 90s and 2000s went on, 
the bicycle came increasingly to be seen as, you know, a means of transport for the poor and for working class people. And the bike and the car rather became a you know a status symbol of urban modernity, where it was like one of those things you needed to you know make sure you could get married and have a professional reputation. Um, and this was reinforced by you know government messaging, by economic policy, and also by urban planning. So a lot of the bike lanes that had previously existed were uh, either removed or shrunk significantly. Um, new roads were built that didn't uh, have bike lanes in them. Um, and also people started to move away from the urban centers and into the suburbs as they, you know, started to want to adopt, you know, more, more Western consumer lifestyles. And there's a whole surge of uh, internal migration from rural areas to the cities as well, which just meant that the cities got bigger and bigger and bigger. And commuting became much more difficult on a bicycle as well, because you just had to travel, you know, 15, 20 kilometers. And now you had a car or maybe a new subway line to do that. So part of it was explicit government policy. Part of it was changing consumer attitudes, which was reinforced by government policy. And part of it was changes in urban geography itself. Could you talk a little about a little bit about the rise of e-bikes here in China? Yeah, e-bikes are a, a really interesting, quite China-specific product, actually. China accounts for about 90% of the global e-bike market. Those are the little electronic scooters you see kind of shooting around the streets of you know Beijing or Shanghai or really anywhere. Um, I used to have one when I lived in Beijing. It was it was a lot of fun. You could you know zoom up to like you know thirty kilometers an hour or something crazy. But they became a an alternative to bicycles for you know middle class working class people because they were much cheaper than cars. They were also much faster and less effort than bicycles. Uh, and they also had an advantage over say motorcycles which were heavily regulated in most major cities because of the noise and the pollution that they created. So they're definitely still a competitor for bicycles, um, but there's not really uh, any international impact from e-bikes. There are some people in the US who are trying to, you know, really make them happen here, but that hasn't really taken off just yet. Uh, so it's mostly still a China-specific product. So recently, it seems like we've actually had a bit of a resurgence in bikes here in China. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure everyone is familiar with the bike sharing craze that swept China from about 2016 onwards. There's since been somewhat of a correction um, as a lot of the smaller firms have gone bust. So, so now you can go to Chinese cities and download an app, pay a deposit, and then you have access to this whole fleet of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bicycles. They're just lying around uh, that you can find on GPS pay a small deposit, small fee, and then ride around to anywhere you're going. And then you can just leave them there. So it's super convenient and it really solves uh, a lot of last mile problems that people have for point-to-point commuting or, or leisure or what have you. So these you know, were sort of enormous hype when they first came out. And companies like Ofo and uh, Morebike you know, raised billions of dollars and started expanding incredibly quickly. So like, there are about 20 million bikes uh, they ordered in 2017, which have been strewn across China's cities, much to the consternation now of many local authorities, because user growth was very quick, and basically everyone who wanted to get on board joined immediately. And so that was about 500% year-on-year growth. Uh, more bike hit about almost 40 million monthly users. But then there was you know, a big correction as you know 
there was kind of negative externalities of just having too many of these bikes and they got broken, they got hard to find, they got stolen, um, they just got in the way of people's lives. So cities started putting caps on them, uh, so people started you know, not using them because it's too much effort. And now, you know, even like an industry leader like Morebike has about 20 million monthly users. Um, so it, the market's stabilizing, it's corrected, and will probably remain a presence in big Chinese cities. But it's the hype, I think, is definitely over. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really does change the way you navigate a city and just gives you this extra uh, kind of radius with which you can really comfortably get around in a 10, 15 minute bike riding experience. But at the same time, I do find it a, a little bit sad to watch these companies sort of crumble and, and shrivel up a little bit uh, from these massive, massive dreams they had in the uh, spring and summer and fall of uh, 2017. Uh, so now turning to Chinese propaganda. So what exactly has changed uh, from the Xi era to, to, to prior years of, of CCP trying to get its message out there? Sure. Yeah, I think propaganda is a really fascinating part of the Chinese political system. Um, it's, also, it's so different from how politics works in um, in Western democracies. Obviously, there's you know political messaging, which is similar, but its role is extremely important for the party in a way that's kind of unique to you know, autocratic systems. So actually, my colleague uh, Damien Ma and I wrote a piece about propaganda a couple of months ago now, and we dubbed Xi Jinping's approach to propaganda uh, propaganda in the new era, appropriating one of his uh, key themes after the last uh, party congress. So we identified four kind of new things about propaganda in the Xi Jinping era um, that constitute you know, this propaganda in the new era, or propaganda 2.0, you might put it. So the first of those is that there's been an increasing amount of control by the party rather than the state over propaganda. And we saw that particularly at the uh, reorganization of the state and party ministries uh, in March 2018. So the, the old, you know, clunkily named State Administration of Press, Publication, Radio, Film and Television uh, was broken up and the party gained control over um, press, publication and film. So that was pretty big because the party hasn't controlled press and publication since the, the 1980s and hasn't controlled film since uh, 1949. And this is important because whilst obviously the party basically controls the state, in China, uh, the one-party state, um, there is a not insignificant administrative difference because they are formally separate administrative entities. Um, the party exercises control through party committees in state organs and also through party discipline mechanisms uh, that it has over uh, all party members who, you know, basically are... Basically, everyone in the higher reach of the state is a party member, so they can't disobey party orders. So it's pretty effective control, but there is room there for you know bureaucratic backsliding, for administrative delays, for you know the advancing of uh, parochial priorities that might not exactly align with um, party directives. So it is a significant shift. So less is likely to get through get through to the keeper um, than previously. So things like uh, Chai Jing's documentary uh, Under the Dome, you know. Maybe now that's not going to ever see the light of day, whereas it had a few days before it was censored previously. 
Uh, so that's the first major change. The second major change is we actually managed to find some data on propaganda budgets, and we've detected a pretty big increase in funding, particularly over the last year, since she really cracked down on his control over the system, you know, for instance, by removing term limits um, and through his you know, kind of triumphant 19th Party Congress last year. And to our knowledge, like, we found some data that no one else has, has used before, because uh, Shanghai is Shanghai's, you know, a pretty one of the more liberal cities in China, and it prides itself on running a very tight ship in its municipal government, and it has a kind of gold standard freedom of information uh, regime. So it actually publishes uh, budgets for its propaganda department, which is amazing because it's really hard to find any data Very nice on any that. other propaganda anywhere else in the country. For instance, you know, because party, no party organ is obligated to disclose its propaganda budget uh, or any of its budgets. So yeah, we saw a, a big uh, a 40% jump from 2017 to 2018 um, from about $360 million to $560 million, uh, US dollars. Um, and we have some kind of less verifiable data that there's been significant increases in the central propaganda budget, you know, hundreds of percents increases over Xi Jinping's short reign. But basically, we can assemble enough data uh, also from the ministry, also from Xinhua, that there has been an increase in uh, propaganda budgets beyond, you know, uh, simple year to year growth that you'd expect. There's also been and one of the possibly one of the most interesting uh, and most visible parts of the new propaganda is the improved quality of its content. Obviously, it's it's still not quite uh, Wolf Warrior Two, which is the uh, very entertaining patriotic film that you know broke box office records uh, a year or two ago. But you know, documentaries like Amazing China, uh, new internet features like the infographics that accompany new policies have really improved the uh, the content delivery of party messages. Um, it's still propaganda, but it's packaged in a way that is much more conscious of consumer tastes, is much more conscious of the needs to be liked by people, the needs to be entertaining, um, the needs to actually be interesting to you know, capture people's attention and to then convey a message, convey the party's message to them. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how... Uh... Right now, th- there is so much more competition, right? In uh, in the 60s and 70s, there were literally no books you could read um, besides like Marx and Engels and uh, Mao and, uh, you know, a few other approved like uh, approved novels all extolling communist virtues. But nowadays, you know kids can just go watch marvel movies on ite like there's nothing stopping um uh, there's nothing stop there's there's much more uh fighting for people's attention uh so it sort of makes sense in a way that the government does recognize that it needs to up its game to get its message across absolutely and um like one of the key motivators for doing propaganda work better it's a really existential thing for the party um uh, because the party is obviously obsessed with staying in power like you'd expect any political regime to be. And its main kind of negative lesson that it studies is obviously the fall of the Soviet Union um, in the early 90s. And Xi Jinping's actually, you know, on record telling uh, Central Committee study sessions that, you know, we have to learn from our predecessors. And the reason that the Soviet Union collapsed, or one of them, in his opinion, is that the ideological control broke down after, you know, Gorbachev, 
uh, introduced his reforms that basically allowed for a free media for a time. And before him, Khrushchev um, denounced Stalin in the secret speech. And this kind of breakdown of the ideological infrastructure of the regime uh, is seen to be, you know, potentially fatal to the faith that people have in it to improve their lives and the sense that there are you know, no alternatives to the party's control of the country and, and the state. So, yeah, it's incredibly important. And this content improvement is, you know, basically the party trying to adapt to, you know, the internet environment, to adapt to changing consumer trends, you know, the way that a, a private company might for its own advertising, um, to, you know, make its message more effective. Yeah, I do find it really funny the, uh, the you know, because there's all these articles or maybe a, a few years back now about how uh, brands need to tell a story and to create a narrative around their product, which is you know exactly what she is trying to do right now with the Communist Party, um, supposedly uh, something that should be above capitalist uh, bourgeois concerns, but is really taking a page out of uh, the Madison Avenue advertisers playbook, it seems. Absolutely. All, you know, This American Life or podcasts like that. Storytelling is very on vogue in in the West, and you know um, the Chinese government does use uh, Western consulting firms and PR firms to help it craft its messages. And yeah, I mean it's definitely not lost on uh, on Xi Jinping. So Neil, you tease this fourth major change, and we can't let you go without without hearing what else <laughs> is going on in Chinese propaganda. I know you're hanging on my every word, so uh, <laughs> I'll make it quick. Um, yeah, so the fourth part of you know propaganda in the new era is that we've seen it to probably have worked at least to some extent um there's a few public opinion measures that show that the effectiveness of propaganda in raising levels of public trust in china's government has risen so we put together a, you know basically all the public opinion data we could find because there's not a lot that specifically addresses uh you know, trust in the government but there is some um, one of the ones we found was uh, an Edelman uh, data set. Uh, that's an American PR firm. And so their 2018 trust barometer showed that China actually topped uh, a 28 market ranking of public trust in institutions. Um, so China had about 84% of the general public said that they trusted um, the Chinese government. And 68% said that they thought that government, as opposed to you know, business or media or NGOs, um, was the institution society uh, most likely to lead to a better future. Um, in the same year, there's obviously some, some issues with cross-country comparison, but in the same year, America's general trust level in the government has fallen to about 36%, um, which is obviously very worrying for America, um, but much lower than the Chinese number. So if Trump should, wants to raise his approval ratings, it's not decrying fake media as fake media. It's what he really should be doing is creating his own fake media and making it, uh, you know, spew, uh, uh, you know, puff pieces left and right is, is, is really what you're getting at. Perhaps. I mean, Xi Jinping definitely focuses on uh, a positive energy is what he wants, uh, diffusing all of China's propaganda. Though Trump has seemed to do very well off uh, the opposite, negative energy, um, particularly aimed against you know all of his imagined enemies of America. Um, so I mean maybe maybe the countries really are you know opposites in that regard. But you know more American flags and waving cornfields uh, surely can only do good, right? <laughs> For sure. 
So now feels like a good, as good a time as a, to shout out as ever, um, Dahufa, da which is a Chinese animated movie that came out in the summer of 2017. I'm not sure if you, um, you've come across this, but it is far and away the most kind of aggressively counter-government piece of media that I've seen released in China. And it's funny reading the Doban, which is like the, you know, Metacritic comments for it, where everyone's sort of shocked that uh, this was able to get a wide release in China because the theme is basically of this, uh, you know, warrior or peanut who sort of uh, goes around and tries to liberate people from this brainwashed state of mind. So um, even today in China, you know, some things end up getting through the the goalpost. It's just um, it's just the vast majority of the stuff is certainly on um, uh, on on message. I'm curious if there's anything uh, that that really strikes out for you as as interesting uh, contemporary media that kind of goes against this that you've seen come out of the mainland. Well, I think over the Sichuan era, the trend has definitely been towards tightening the ideological sphere. You know, the document number nine that came out in 2013 that had, you know, the seven no's, which were basically all of the uh, the values of Western uh, liberal societies and media freedom. Um, there are obviously still a lot of interesting things that happen in China. Um, there was obviously recently an essay by a scholar, uh, Xu Zhangrun, that was you know, excoriated the party that was published on the UniRule website. I'm not sure uh, what the status of its censorship was, but it was definitely live for a while, and things have got through. There was, a, I think, an article on a, a Xinjiang government website uh, two or three years ago that was critical of the party. There's been articles on the uh, Central Disciplinary Commission uh, website that have, you know, kind of uh, use history to um, historical uh, analogies to make you know, veiled warnings that the system needs more voices in the policy making process rather than just uh, Chairman Xi. But yeah, I mean, there's still some interesting things happening, like um, websites like like the paper, like um, Jemian. They occasionally publish stories that you know they're definitely within the bounds of political expression. You know, nothing on like Tibet or the the Uyghur situation is getting through in you know, official media and the mainland. But there's still definitely interesting things that get published. You know, Sixth Tone, the English partner of the paper, publishes some interesting articles on Chinese society that are definitely not, uh, not always flattering. And some of them are very good. Um, some of them are you know, basically investigative journalism. So, you know, the, the, the media is not totally dead, but, you know, there is definitely less and less space for interesting things uh, to get through. Also, Macro Polo is not blocked yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Yeah, the 
选择偷灯。这里好星星，这才是幽梦。绿网的星星，耀眼的星星，时尚的精英，搭配什么看我的心情？你可以去。